Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be alive, courtesy of your grace. Help us not take any day for granted, Father. This is another day to bring you glory, to praise you, to worship you through your word and your spirit. We thank you for this privilege before we go home to be with you forever and ever. Thank you that we can make some type of a, a difference for your name, to bring glory to your name with our lives. Our lives are not our own, Father. They belong to you. Help us always remember that each day. Father, most of all, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, for sending him to be our substitute in judgment once for all at the cross. so that our sin can be taken away forever and ever for those who trust in him. We ask that you bless this message, that you guide us and teach us by your Holy Spirit. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Plainly stated doctrine in the book of Acts. Uh, first, I just want to thank Pastor, by the way, for the privilege of filling in for him and standing behind his pulpit. Um, it's always an honor and a privilege to have any part in the plan of God, uh, never mind to help uh, his sheep learn the plan. It's a wonderful privilege. Uh, also, just so you know, we'll be kind of in survey mode for this series on this subject. Um, in other words, we won't be spending a whole lot of time in the weeds. We'll just be surveying through the book of Acts, and we're going to try to get through the whole book on this theme in the next three lessons. So, you know, keep your fingers moving, but we'll be in Acts most of the time, so you can, might hold your thumb there a lot. We'll be bouncing around a little bit, but always coming back to Acts. So this mini-series started from a conversation Pastor and I had just a few days ago, actually, and I was just commenting to him on how overwhelmed I've been, uh, how much I've been enjoying seeing all the plainly stated doctrine and all the plainly stated truth in the book of Acts, which personally I'd never, never taken the time to enjoy. And that might sound kind of funny, but just never spent enough time in Acts and seeing what it just says uh, so wonderfully uh, simple and not confusing. So he said, why not teach on it? And so here we are today. You know, and it's a pretty simple topic. It's not complicated, but I think you'll see it's like very fulfilling. So between our pulpit lessons and our Wednesday night roundtable Bible studies, which have been on the book of Acts for quite a while, Acts has been a big help to us in clarifying some things that aren't even directly stated in the New Testament epistles. In particular, we'll probably end the series with one thing on my mind that isn't known, can't be known from the New Testament letters that we all love so much. So there are some of those things that come out in Acts that um, just shed more light on everything. And as Pastor put it, Acts is like connective tissue between the Lord's teachings in the Gospels and the epistles of Paul. And we can include the epistles of Peter, James, and John too in that. All the letters of the New Testament from the apostles 
are just wonderful and filled with wonderful doctrine. Yet they are more directly instructional. And as pastor has called it in the past, they're forensic in nature. So when I heard that word forensic, I, I wanted a little bit more clarification on what he was getting to. So I'll put the dictionary on the board for you. Not the whole dictionary. Forensic at dictionary.com. It means pertaining to, connected with, or used in courts of law or public discussion and debate. So in my mind, it's like the art of building a case or making an argument or defending a point in some type of debate setting. That's kind of what the, the letters of the New Testament are like where Paul, as pastors mentioned in the past, you know, they're written to a particular church. Um, they're often geared toward a particular problem in the church, a particular attack or a particular weakness. And it's wonderful. But it doesn't tell the whole story of the gospel, for example. It tells part of it. So while the letters are like looking back on the facts of the gospel of Christ and maybe clarifying certain things or adding certain things, um, from a different point of view, uh, the book of Acts is quite different in its approach. So as we go on, also, let's just remember on the board the big picture. The New Testament letters, from like Romans to Jude, they were written years later to the very same churches the apostles founded and built in the book of Acts. So it's all uh, very uh, intimately connected. But for big picture's sake, just think about that. Sometimes we, we lose the connection of it. Uh, all the letters to, to, for example, on the board, Paul took missionary trips to places like Galatia, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, etc. And later on, many years later, he wrote to them, often defending the gospel from attacks he heard about at their churches or in their locations. So keep that big picture in mind. But it all originated in the book of Acts and in the activities that took place in the book of Acts. So Acts, rather than learning from uh, specific letters that often address a particular issue, in Acts we learn from the apostles doing and living out the gospel. And by the way, that's why it's called the book of Acts, also known as the Acts of the Apostles. So we're learning from doing which is really pretty fascinating if you think about it because we're called to live out the Great Commission. And I want to see, I want to hear how Paul gave the gospel or Peter gave the gospel. It's one thing to read what the gospel is. It's another thing to see them do it, just like seeing the Lord out of his own mouth give the gospel in different ways, which frees us up as well. But that's what we see in Acts. We get to learn from um, the actual doing of it. And it's so different from the letters to the church. Uh, instead of learning from direct instructions, we learn principles from events that occurred and the apostles' responses while experiencing these events. So it's real-life stuff, so to speak. And the great thing is the Holy Spirit decided to record it all in Scripture. So when you read the book of Acts... It's recorded for a reason. It's inspired by the Spirit. It's part of the Bible for a reason. So we take it as truth, plain statements of truth to live by.
One other reason I was motivated to teach on this subject is because there's nothing quite like plainly stated doctrine in the Word of God. And this came up on Tuesday evening also. There's no guessing with many of the plain statements that are made in the book of Acts. There are no parables to interpret. There are no, uh, there's no theological talk to figure out, as some of the letters that Paul wrote can be kind of hard to understand at times. Acts is, in that way, refreshing. With the faith of a child, anyone, regardless of background or newness to the faith, can receive these plain statements in humility and learn a lot from them. And the simple things are the best, aren't they? As we try to live the spiritual life the way Paul encouraged us to in 2 Corinthians 11, in simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. So just, I hope you sit back and kind of enjoy this series. Almost maybe it's, maybe it's even a breather for some of you, where like this repentance su- subject is a little difficult or confusing or whatever. Maybe God is giving us a little break and he's like, just see what it says and believe it and follow me. That's really what the Lord wants from all of us. So let's begin in Acts 1 verse 24. Turn to Acts 1 verse 24. And as we jump in here, I want you to realize in context, the apostles are selecting a new apostle to replace the traitor, Judas Iscariot. So we're not going to read the whole passage, but now you know what's going on. And look at verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. So there we see a very... Uh, relieving principle, a very plain statement made, the Lord knows the hearts of all men. Very simple, no room for misinterpretation. It's nice that the Spirit started us this way in this series because as we've been noting, the hearts involved in repentance and saving faith. And that the heart is what counts in God's eyes. We should know that by now. God God looks at the heart. And the Lord, knowing the hearts of all men, if, if a person accepts this statement in this verse, in verse 24, the Lord knows the hearts of all men. If a person accepts that statement personally, that should humble him before the Lord. How can it not, if you believe it? And as Scripture also tells us, no man is hidden from his sight. On the board, in Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what does this plainly stated truth spur on in man? I mean, when you look at Acts 1.24 and you see, You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. What does that spur on or bring on in man's heart? Could it be repentance? Doesn't that make you think? I've been fooling myself, but he knows my heart, and oh crap. You know, maybe I should think about, uh, examine, go to him honestly with what I've been even thinking. Forget about doing. 
So it's a beautiful thing that these kind of things and this proper fear of the Lord brings on repentance. And it comes from knowing plainly stated statements like this. So as we go out and spread the gospel in obedience to the Great Commission, it would be wise of us to bring up the simple, pure truth that God knows the heart. How about making that part of your gospel presentation? Not that it's ever the exact same, you know, more than once, but shouldn't people know this? For example, on the board when sharing the gospel, you say you have no sin? Well, God knows the heart. In fact, Jesus said, if you even think something, you've done it in God's eyes. Do you think maybe you need to repent towards God, my friend? So utilize these simple, wonderful, and powerful truths to open people up, to lead them to repentance in love, in kindness, which we'll see later on as well. So there's our first plainly stated doctrine that we can grab onto by faith. There's no denying what is said in verse 24. So we can couple this verse with Acts 2, verse 21. So turn there, Acts 2.21. Just keeping in mind, in mind uh, 1.24 that we just read. The Lord knows the hearts of all men. Acts 2.21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Hallelujah. Right? Amen. Thank God. It is that clear and simple. Here's a clear and wonderful statement about the good news. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yet, if we synthesize this with the first verse we went to of plainly stated doctrine, knowing that God knows the hearts of men, then we see that this calling out to the Lord must be done with an honest heart. Very simple, right? One plus one is two. This calling out to the Lord, everyone that calls on the Lord will be saved. But God looks at the heart. It must be done in an honest heart. You can't fool God and pretend you're calling out to the Lord to cover your butt. Right? Because you want to fit into the religious thing or keep doing what you're doing, but, you know, just in case you have Jesus on your side. So you think. You can't fool God. So let's synthesize these simple Statements, these plainly stated statements. Calling out to the Lord must be done with an honest heart. This is one reason the Lord himself warned about lip service in the Gospels. And he said to some people who used his name in the Gospels, I never knew you. The religious crowd that gives a mental assent to Jesus as a sideshow, just in case, They did not call on the Lord from the heart. And as we know from recent studies, that's what the Lord's looking for. And uh, in fact, let's turn again to Romans 10, verse 9. You can hold your place in Acts if you want. Romans 10, verse 9. As a reminder of where believing comes from. As we've been studying lately in the Repentance series, the whole man is involved in trusting in the Lord, not just the mind. So let's look at Romans 10, verse 8. 
But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on his name. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that last verse is the exact same as Acts 2.21. But do you see how both are involved in salvation, in calling on the Lord? When I say both, I mean the mouth and the heart. Both are involved in calling on the Lord for salvation. As we read this scripture. So the mouth without the heart is a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place. It's, a, it's like a, it's a dead place. It's a place without heart, right? It's not going to bring salvation. That's where the lip service of religion is not accepted by the Lord. As mentioned in James, the demons believe and shudder because they intellectually knew the Lord, they knew Jesus was Lord, and in fact, they stated it with their mouths in the Gospels. We're not going to turn there, but I can think of several scriptures in the Gospels where the demons said, Lord, why are you here to you know, mess with us? What do you want with us? Are you sending us to punishment now? With their mouths, they professed him as Lord. Pretty scary. Not saved. So the mouth and the heart are part of salvation. As we've been noting also on the board, the gospel is simple. It is so simple and so pure. But it's just not easy for man because man holds on to a stubborn and unrepentant heart. Romans 2, 4 through 5, we've been seeing recently. The gospel is simple, but it's not easy for man because man holds on to a stubborn and un unrepentant heart. To believe or to repent and believe in Christ is so simple, and it's empowered totally by God. But men resist the truth because in pride they hate to surrender their will. That's the fact of the matter. The gospel is so simple that people actually stumble over its simplicity because they're unwilling to get out of the way. I will do my own thing. I will be good enough to please God. I will satisfy my own lusts. I don't need God. So that's the only thing. That's why it's not easy. For mankind because the flesh is so horrible but it's simple couldn't be simpler so synthesizing scripture with scripture and plainly stated doctrines with one another we see the big picture I hope we see the big picture just by comparing those two verses in Acts we see how they go together and they, they combine into one beautiful truth 
So again, go back to Acts 2.21. The point is that with the humility of a child, anyone can, quote-unquote, get it. And this is what Acts brings out to us. Great book to recommend to be read, you know. Maybe the Gospel of John and the book of Acts should be the first two. But anyway, um, Acts 2.21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So while this is a plain, true statement... Also, we know from Holy Scripture that the Lord called us first, right? We didn't call Him first. Scripture says He called us first. So while this is true in verse 21, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, make no mistake, you didn't call on God first out of your own will or own wisdom. God called on you first. God got your attention some way, somehow, in a unique way. But God called on you first. In fact, on the board, his call, is to op- his call to us opened our ears and even empowered us to call upon him to be saved. Right? Where does the faith come from? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. From him. His call to us opened our ears and even empowered us to call upon him to be saved. So hold your thumb and go to verse 37, Acts 2.37. It's probably on the next page or whatever. Acts 2.37 through 39. Now when they heard this, okay, this was the Jews that just heard all the apostles speaking in tongues in their own language, and they all gathered, and Peter was talking to them. When they heard this, that they put their Messiah to death, They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So there we see it again, as in our recent studies on repentance. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. If the Lord doesn't call you, you're not coming. You can't come. You don't have the ability to come. Again, the love of the Lord is the initiator in salvation. Even spurring man on to call out to him. We might also say it this way on the board. Man's call out to God to be saved is actually a response to the call of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord who reaches out to save man. We just saw that in Acts 2.39, and we also see it in Acts 2.47. So look at Acts 2.47, since you should be right there. And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Who was adding to the number? The Lord, right? Nobody else. The apostles were vessels used to give the gospel. But only the Lord can save a person. Only the Lord can change a man's heart. And so we have more evidence of the point on the board. 
Man's call out to God to be saved is actually a response to the call of the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord who reaches out to save man. As in our recent lessons, without the Father drawing someone, they cannot come to Christ. So said Jesus. Unless the Father draws you, you can't come to me. Same principle. And that's how powerless the spiritually dead person is. And yet, simultaneously true is verse 21, which we've read a couple times now. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is all simultaneously true, even though they might appear to somehow contradict each other a little bit. Right? They all work together. They're all true together. So what do we make of this on the board? We simply rejoice. This is supernatural. A man being saved is totally a supernatural event that takes place in each person's soul differently even between the call that God gives, the way God calls them, the way God gets their attention. It's different for every one of us in the room. So this is a very supernatural thing, how these things all work together. Leave that in God's hands. God's reaching out to the spiritually deaf and convicting man's heart to a response that saves. That's all supernatural. As pastors said, don't try to figure out the stuff in the middle. You know, how do these things connect and work exactly? What's the right order? You know, what's the, the steps? Stop thinking that way. Be like a child. Say, I don't know enough. I can't figure it out. I don't want to figure it out, Dad. I trust you. And just leave it at that and enjoy life. Enjoy the gospel for yourself and, and in sharing it. Only God can save man. And because God looks at the heart again, he cannot be mocked. So as a little side note, just think about this. Isn't it great to have a sovereign king who is gracious and kind, but yet doesn't accept being mocked? Do you know what I'm getting at? Isn't it great to have a sovereign king who has all powers and has the final say on everything. He's gracious and kind and merciful, but yet he refuses to be mocked. He's not a pushover. He's not willing to be taken advantage of or just receive lip service. Otherwise, it's a father who says what is true for his household and isn't willing to back it up or stand by it. That's a lack of stability in a home. But with the Lord, he gives us perfect stability. Why? Because we know him. We know his character. And that even though he's gracious and kind, he won't be mocked. And that's beautiful because he's, he's strong and compassionate. He's reliable and forgiving. And that's what more could you want. You, you want and you need both if you're going to have any stability or any confidence. So on the board, our Lord is both justice and mercy. He is the lion and the lamb. We don't have a king who is weak in any way, but he's full of grace and truth in John 1, 14. Perfectly full of both grace and truth.
Some people mistake his kindness for weakness, and they refuse to repent because of it. But that's a grave mistake. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Remember what happened to the man that came to the wedding feast we talked about a couple weeks ago? He came to the wedding feast, but he refused to put on the king's wedding clothes. For example, the king's righteousness. And he came in with his own righteousness. And what happened? The Lord sent him to outer darkness. He's like, how can you refuse my offer? It's perfect. It's good. I'll give you, I'll give, you, know, you up to your own wishes, really. Your own free will. To hold on to your own righteousness. So we have such an awesome God. On the board, the Lord calls and saves and shares his very own righteousness with those who are humbly willing to drop their own righteousness. We've seen Luke 18, 9 through 14 now for the last week or so. The Lord calls and saves and shares his very own righteousness with those who are simply willing to drop their own righteousness. It couldn't be more simple and gracious. And it's all by and for the sovereign good pleasure of God. Another beautifully, plainly stated doctrine is found in Acts 3, verse 26. Go to Acts 3, verse 26. I hope you're seeing that these are things that like can't be mistaken. And that's the beauty of it. Acts 3.26 For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Talking about Jesus being sent to turn every one of you from your wicked ways. There we see a plainly stated objective of our Lord to turn us all from our wicked ways. Doesn't get much simpler than that, right? You can't (laughs) make up another doctrine out of that. We're all born in sin. We've all personally sinned against him, which is what unbelievers need to understand too. And he wants us to turn from that and turn to him. Plain and simple. So regarding this verse, I have a question for you. When Jesus ate dinner with the tax collectors and prostitutes, what was he doing? What do you think he was doing? What does the scripture say he was doing? When Jesus ate dinner with the tax collectors and prostitutes, what was he doing? Was he condoning their sin? Was he just ignoring their sin? Just say, let's be friends anyway. Or was he showing them love by correcting them all the while? What does Scripture say? Remember, Jesus is full of grace and truth. He was never one without the other. He never compromised. And he simply told the truth in love. So, to our point in verse uh, 26, where it says, He was sent to turn us from our wicked ways. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 5, verse 29. 
A lot of people don't think of this part of Jesus. Right? Jesus came to save, right? To seek and save the lost. Yeah. Amen. How did he do it? Well, one of the ways or one of his objectives was to turn people from their wicked ways and turn to him in humility. Luke 5.29 And Levi, he's a tax collector, gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He was calling them to repentance, folks. Probably in the kindest way possible. But make no mistake, he was telling them the truth about their sin and where, where it was going to lead them if they didn't decide to turn away, if they weren't willing to turn away and turn to him. He was telling them the truth. Again, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I picture a father eating dinner with his children, expressing his love and care for them, and teaching them not to go forward in their wicked ways that hurt themselves and their father. That's the only picture I can have in my head of this verse and what might have happened there or how it looked at that table. A loving, caring father warning them about what's going to hurt them and him. Jesus was calling them to repent. And so we have the Lord's call when he started his ministry on the board in Mark 1.15b. Repent and believe the good news. And as we've been discussing, people in contemporary Christianity don't want to talk about the call to repentance because they think it's somehow an attack on God's love. And I, I know this because I think I was in that camp at one point in my head. You know, if you, if you mention sin or repentance too much, people aren't going to understand that God loves them. And it's really a lopsided scale. On the contrary, the call to repent is a call from love, from a loving father who doesn't want to see anything bad happen to his children. People in some churches might say, if Jesus loves us all unconditionally, well, let's not mention repentance so people aren't offended or turned away. But think about it. What do you mean if you say that statement? Jesus was willing to turn people away. He did. In fact, at times in the Gospels, he purposely pushed people away. Because he knows all things, I suppose. You aren't ready. And what did he do? He gave them hard teachings or certain demands to follow him. And they just ran away. They weren't willing to surrender their will and their heart to him. They weren't willing as a child to say, okay, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Save me, Dad. They weren't willing. So why don't we honestly tell people, if Jesus honestly told people, like almost to a fault, like, Lord, didn't you come to save them? Why are you pushing them away? Don't you want everyone to be saved, Lord? 
Why are you pushing them away? If someone's arrogant, they're not going to come. And the Lord, of course, knows their hearts. So why don't we honestly tell people that one reason Jesus came was the plainly stated doctrine found in Acts 3.26. Look again at Acts 3.26. Why don't we just honestly tell people this? Jesus loves you. And he wants to turn you from the sin that is enslaving you. He doesn't want you to be hurt by it. He knows it's going to cause you more pain than you think. And it's going to hurt your Heavenly Father above. Acts 3.26 For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. That's actually part of you know, the gospel call to repentance. And there we also see, I don't know if you noticed it, but it says to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now, this, the flesh doesn't agree that that's a blessing, of course. I want what I want. I have my lusts. I want them satisfied. What do you mean? It seems good to me, right? But it's a blessing to be turned from your wicked ways, to be rescued from slavery, to be rescued from sin and death in the end. God declares it. God declares um, tough statements like this because he loves us. And our Father knows what's good for us and what's not good for us. And that's part of the message of when we give the gospel. It's actually a blessing. He's trying to save you. You don't realize it. He's trying to save you from yourself. Are you tired of your life yet? Are you, are you tired of falling over and over and over and over and you know scraping your knees over and over and over and over? So we are to speak the truth in love just like Jesus did. For example, the Lord doesn't want you to be enslaved to sin. He wants you to be free from it. But you have to be willing to turn away. And he'll give you the power if you're just willing. Do you want his help? He'll, he'll do it all for you if you want. If you honestly, in your heart, want him to save you, he'll do it all for you. Do you want his help to escape slavery? I don't know. It's just examples of what the talk might be like. But we shouldn't be scared to mention what Acts 3.26 says. We can do it in love, just like he did it. Do you remember what the Lord himself commissioned Paul to do? Look on the board in Acts 26, 17b through 18 in the NIV. And these are the Lord's words to Paul when Paul got converted on the road to Damascus. And the Lord gave him his commission for his life. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The implication here is if they don't turn, or they're not willing to turn from darkness to light, from sin to righteousness, from the power of Satan to God, if they're not willing, they can't receive forgiveness of sins and be sanctified by faith in me. What do we see last week on the repentance series? Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll, you'll also perish. And Pastor made the point of, if you don't go past this point, 
If you don't get beyond this point, you can't go any further. You can't get to saving faith and forgiveness of sins. Excuse me. So how much more plain does it get than that on the board, right? Again, Acts 26, 17 through 18. I'm sending you, Jesus said, to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So again we see one of the Lord's main objectives was to turn man from his wicked ways. And that's a theme that runs throughout the Old and New Testament. I hope you're seeing it as you read in your Bibles more and more. That same theme is through the whole Bible. It's the same gospel. It's the same pattern. How many times do you see in the Old Testament, for example, you know, turn away from your wicked ways and come to me, says the Lord. Right? If you don't turn away, you're not willing to turn away, you can't be with me. You can't be mine. You see, over and over and over, Old Testament, New Testament, gospels, letters, Whatever, wherever you go. So this was one of the Lord's main objectives in his call to people. Repent and believe the good news. If you don't repent, you won't receive the good news. So we see that God grants repentance and faith as well to those that are willing to turn. Turn to Acts 4, verse 12. I think you might already be there. Acts 4.12. Here's another plainly stated doctrine or truth. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's a bold statement, right? Here we, we see this truth stated by the apostles when they were in front of the religious Pharisees being judged. Where did the apostles learn this from, and why did they state this so plainly and confidently in the face of people that wanted to kill them? Because they had to. You know why they had to? They heard it directly from Jesus' lips. And hopefully they had the love of Christ in them that wanted these people to be saved too, even though they were faced with death possibly. They stated Acts 4.12. There's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And again, they got this straight from the Lord's mouth and they decided by faith to live it out in the book of Acts. Hold your place in Acts and turn to John 14, verse 5. John 14, 5. Where did they get this bold statement from, and why did they declare it confidently? John 14, 5. Thomas said to him, Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the disciples We're just relaying the message. By faith, in the face of possible death, 
back in Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. We can go back there. There's salvation in no one else, they said. There's no other name under heaven which has been given among men by which we must be saved. Another topic that we're plainly told about in the book of Acts is predestination. And in Acts 4.28, this fits right in with the fact that God calls us and elects us. And he knew about it all beforehand because he's God. He even planned it. So look at Acts 4, verse 23. Acts 4, 23. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise foolish things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. There's another plain statement, folks, that we can cling to as truth. What happened at the cross, even, is whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur. Nothing happens without Him knowing it, right? He's never surprised, that's for sure. So that, and that's why whatever happens in our lives, we have to be like, you know what? God's got a reason because he knew this was going to happen, and he allowed it. God's got a reason. Otherwise, he wouldn't have predestined it if it wasn't good for you in some way or for other people in your periphery. So we know this plain statement that the Lord... Uh, from this plain statement, rather, that the Lord even predestined the cross. Something to think about. He predestined it all to happen for man's sake. And we can go back to Acts 2.23 to support this as well. So hold your place in Acts 4 and look at Acts 2, verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. How is this done? By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Or back in Acts 4, 28, it was what God's hand and purpose predestined to occur. And these things should give us hope. We don't have a God that's ever going to be surprised. He's got a plan for everything. Then we have some plainly stated truth in Acts chapter 5 to consider. And obedience is mentioned a couple times in a couple different ways. So look at Acts 5 verse 27. Everyone having fun? Acts 
when they had brought them, they stood them before the council. Boy, these apostles, every chapter they were in front of the council. This must have been horrible. When they had brought them, they, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Plainly stated truth, right? Can't confuse that. We must obey God rather than men. So let's pause here for a minute before we go on in this passage. Here we see that as believers obeying the call of the Great Commission, we must obey God rather than men when told not to spread the good news or when told not to talk about Christ. That's the context here, right? However, some people like to use this verse for various areas of life, especially when they have something to gain or they desire to disobey an authority. Anybody guilty? I have to obey God rather than the men. I'm not doing what you told me to do because I don't like you. So I'm going to quote that verse so I can do what I want and disobey the authority, even though I don't really have a legitimate reason. So just be careful. In context, this is talking about spreading the gospel and not listening to even legitimate authorities, government authorities, whoever it might be, who say, don't spread the gospel or don't talk about Christ. Now, by the way, if you do it in the workplace or a place like that, that's up to you. That's between you and the Lord. And there might be consequences from the authority, right? Just like the apostles faced consequences for disobeying them. But I also want you to notice here, they disobeyed the authority and stood on the truth, but they did it with respect. They didn't do it in arrogance. We're going to talk about this. So first of all, we see a plain statement in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. On the board, Acts 5.29, truth in context. This doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly in the face of authorities that are against Christ. On the contrary, it's speaking the truth in love, humbly saying, this is what I must do because God said so. We must obey God rather than men. So as we begin to close, let's see something that we saw last night in our roundtable Bible study as we discussed the power of humility when spreading the good news. Um, hold your place here in Acts and, uh, 5 and go to Acts 23. Acts 23, verse 1. Again, the point on the board. This doesn't give us the right to act arrogantly in the face of authorities that are against Christ. On the contrary, it's speaking the truth in love, humbly saying, this is what I must do because God said so. I'm sorry, Mr. Authority. I really don't want to go against you, but I must in this case because God has made it clear. This is what I'm called to do. So Acts 23.1. Paul, looking intently at the council. Here's the council again. I wonder how many times the council is in Acts. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, talking to his Jewish brethren, 
I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing behind him to strike him in the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So you see Paul correcting himself there and humbling himself when he realized it was the high priest. A God-given authority. All authority is God-given. So rather than act so... um, possibly arrogantly or disrespectfully, let's say. He corrected himself. He's like, I was wrong. And only God knows how that proper humility might have opened up some hearts to Christ at that council. It'd be fun to see in heaven one day and maybe fun to see in, in heaven in your own life one day when you have a chance like this in front of others to be humbly respectful even though you have to obey God instead of men. He didn't apologize, Paul didn't, for preaching Christ. But he wasn't arrogant with the truth either. And if you're arrogant with the truth, you're not representing Christ properly. Amen? If you're arrogant with the truth, if it goes to your head even, if you're like, I know the truth and you don't, you know, when you start acting like a teenager, a sophomore, you are out of line. We're nothing but unworthy slaves. And our hope is to save the very person in front of us, of course. So if you're arrogant with the truth, you're not representing Christ properly. All right, let's go back on with our passage in Acts 5, 27. As I pick a spot. Acts 5, 27. When they had brought them... They stood then before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witness, or we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. There's another plain statement in verse 32. The Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Interesting language. On the board. It plainly states God gives his Holy Spirit to those who obey him. And notice it says obey, not just the word believe, for example. It says obey. Well, a person who believes with his heart is the one who obeys the command of the gospel. I hope that makes sense. A person that believes with his heart He's the one that obeys the command of the gospel. So let's tie this all in together. See if you remember the principle of obeying the gospel in the scriptures. 
And this is another clue, by the way, that supports the whole gospel reload we've been through. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. This will be our last passage. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Again, the point on the board, God gives His Holy Spirit to those who obey Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.6 For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What's man's problem? Disobedience to the Lord throughout all Scripture. And that includes disobedience to the gospel. The command to repent and believe in Christ, for example. A stubborn and unrepentant heart in Romans 2. And this is just another reminder that saving faith is more than a mental assent to the facts about Jesus. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an obedience. It's a surrender again, if you want to go back to that term. That's what saving faith really is. True faith. Because it involves the heart. So we'll close there because I said that was our last passage. I got one more we'll get to on Sunday. But just go back to Acts 5, 32 and we'll close. Acts 5.32 And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. An interesting thing to think about, because Scripture says the Holy Spirit is given to all believers. So in this case, it says only to those who obey Him. So it should shed some light again on what it means to believe the gospel. So we'll pick it up there on Sunday morning. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word. We thank you for revealing these things to us. Even though we were spiritually deaf at one point, you, you called to us and you opened our ears, and we're eternally grateful for that. And you even make these things understandable to us. And we thank you for the plainly stated doctrines in the book of Acts that give us nowhere to turn but to childlike faith. We're grateful, Father, for everything you do for us. Please bless us as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.